If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We hope you've been enjoying the History Extra podcast and all it has to offer. Summer is the perfect time to delve deeper into the things you love. So subscribe to BBC History magazine for just £24.99 every six issues, saving 30% on the shop price. Plus, you will receive a book of your choice worth up to £30. Choose from Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917-1921 by Anthony Beaver, In Search of the Dark Ages by Michael Wood, signed edition, In Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Cultural Icon by Helen Rappaport, signed edition, or... Persians, The Age of the Great Kings by Professor Lloyd Llewellyn Jones. To take advantage of this offer and for more information, visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash summer reads 2022. Offer ends on the 5th of August 2022. Offer only available to UK residents. Please visit website for terms and conditions. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On the 16th of September 1890, the inventor Louis Le Prince boarded a train to Paris and promptly disappeared without a trace. In his book, The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures, author Paul Fisher explores Le Prince's life and delves into the many theories about what may have happened to him, from an accident or a mugging to a murder at the hands of his rival, Thomas Edison, in order to steal Le Prince's latest invention. I spoke to Paul to find out more. Your book looks at the story of the 19th century inventor, Louis Le Prince, who mysteriously disappeared in 1890. Before we work backwards towards Le Prince's life and inventions, let's start, I think, with his disappearance, as you do in your book. What do we know about the day he vanished? So what we know about that day, it's uh, September 1890, and Le Prince is in France, visiting his brother in Dijon, in the south of France. And his brother is the last person to see him. And as his brother and his uh, his brother's family recall it later, the prince is there for a weekend visit. Everything goes very well. He's about to sail back to America 
where he wants to premiere this invention he's been working on for half a decade. And they see him off on the train to Paris. That's a little bit late. So they wait with him. They have lunch. They put Le Prince on the train. And he's got friends waiting for him in Paris. When the train pulls into Paris, Le Prince is no longer on it. And there's no evidence of what's happened to him on the way. There's no reports of, of incidents or anything untoward. And it takes a few weeks because of this for anybody to realize that he's actually gone. It's Victorian society. There are telephones, but they're not really used. And so there's sort of a whole bunch of assumptions being made when someone doesn't get in touch. So the friends waiting for Le Prince in Paris don't see him arrive and assume, oh, he decided to stay in the south of France for a few days longer. He'll meet us later. His brother in France thinks he's now in England. I don't need to hear back from him. And, and if I were, it'd be for, for something having gone wrong. So it's several weeks gone by before Le Prince's wife, who's in the United States getting ready for this premiere, actually telegrams back home, cables back home saying, you know, usually Louis writes me a letter every week. It's been about three weeks. I've heard nothing. What's happening? And so the friends in England go, oh, he's still in France, but we'll send a message over there and, and make sure he gets in touch. And so they get in touch with a brother in France who goes, oh, I thought he was with you. And by the time everybody works out, oh, he's not over there and he's not over here. And no one's actually heard from him because they also all assume that everybody's heard from him. And it takes days or weeks for letters and cables to go back and forth, which slows everything down even further. By the time his wife, Lizzie, in New York realizes, oh, something's wrong. It's not just a missed letter. It's been a month and a half. And so what was really interesting to me digging into this, it's almost a cold case from the second it gets started. There's almost confusion straight off the bat. And then on top of this, all the stuff we assume now about a disappearance, that the police would get involved immediately, that you'd have a call for information on the news. All this stuff doesn't really exist. Even the idea of detecting in the kind of Sherlock Holmes sense doesn't really exist either. It's, it's police work is have we found a body? Has someone said something? And so it's a disappearance that really feels entirely like a vanishing. He's gone. There's no trace. There's confusion. And, you know, everybody who cares about him is trying to pick up the pieces without even really having that many pieces suddenly. As you say, this vanishing is is fascinating and mysterious in itself. But the story that you tell in your book is is much broader and more wide-ranging than that. We'll return to the disappearance, I think, later in the podcast. But let's kind of circle back to the start now. So tell us a bit more about who Le Prince was. Sure. So Louis Le Prince was born in Metz in the east of France, which is in the Alsace, which is one of those territories that, that was disputed between the Prussians, the Germans, and the French back and forth over the, the 19th century and, and, and beyond that in the past. And so he's the son of a military officer. He's got a sort of mixed German-French background, and he's from the kind of comfortable middle class. His father's an officer, and he goes through life, his young adulthood, you know, working for painters, studying kind of chemistry at university, and you get the sense that he's one of those, you know, sort of bourgeois young men who's not too sure what he wants to do with his life. Until he meets this woman from Yorkshire in England called Lizzie Whitley, who's in Paris studying sculpture. And they fall in love and Le Prince moves back to England with her, sets up in Leeds, marries her, goes to work in the family, Iron Forge. That's the first kind of, you know, big meeting in, a, in his life in a sense that when he starts working for Joseph Whitley, who was one of those industrial revolution, north of England, steam engines, Iron Forge entrepreneurs... Le Prince starts learning about 
patents and about this idea that in the 19th century, if you're creative and you have some capital and you don't want to get a, a job or a vocation to work for the civil service or whatever, you can use your inventivity to come up with something new. And then by patenting this something new, you can actually make a living and be quite important. And so over the course of several years in Leeds, Le Prince has different jobs and he stops working for the family firm eventually. And he kind of existed at this mixture of art and technology. So he was very good at, at engineering drawings and chemistry and optics, but he was also fascinated with painting and photography. And so the stuff he's trying to come up with and experiment with are kind of centered around photographs. And so he comes up with ways to, to fire photographs onto plates. You know, people love the king and queen. People love Victoria. I'll put their faces on some china. I'll sell it. They'll get some attention. And then one day, kind of entirely by chance, he's manipulating these photographs and a couple of them slip in his hands. And as he grabs them, they kind of superimpose. And it looks like the person in the image is moving. And he gets this idea of, whoa, this could be the thing. If I could actually make photographs click together so they would move, then I can just capture life, put it in a box, and you can replay it whenever you want. And so that's kind of the genesis. This is nearly a decade before he disappears. And he has this idea. And one thing that was really compelling to me about him is he had no sort of formal training to do this. He didn't have a path that led directly to this other than kind of in a very old-fashioned artisan way. He had a whole bunch of different stuff in his background that led him to connecting these different dots into this could be interesting. And in the way invention works, there was a whole bunch of other people having the exact same idea around the exact same time. And there were sort of two camps. Le Prince was one of those self-taught, self-funded, works in the shed in the back of the house, inventors of that generation. And he was coming up against the people like Thomas Edison, who was kind of a professional inventor and heavily funded and had a lab, or scientists like Etienne Marais in France, who were sort of funded by the government. And so he was trying to come up with motion pictures at the same time other people are trying to come up with motion pictures at a time where we were kind of redesigning what inventing meant and what innovation meant. And so without knowing it, he was up against this new capitalist concept of kind of formalized invention. And so he dives in. And what do we know about the relationships between those rival inventors, people who, across the world who are working on similar projects, as you say, to make moving pictures? Were they aware of other people working on the same project? Was there a sense of a race? There was awareness and there was a sense of a race, but it, it was sort of vague. So the patent system means that when you apply for a patent, it gets published. And so everybody can read it. And so there was a little bit of that, of, of inventors kind of panicking, going, oh, I got to be the first. So I got to be the first to have a patent. And so they file for a patent for machines that don't quite work. And so they can't build them and they can't make money from them. But now the patent's in the public domain. So everybody else knows how far along you are and can kind of pick bits away from it. So there was that kind of awareness and preying on people. And then much more in Europe, there was also a sense of collaboration still. There was a French journal called La Nature, The Nature, where people would almost communicate through letters to the editor about developments that they'd had. And it was considered kind of the more genteel, civilized way of, of declaring progress than just, here's my commercial claim. So in motion pictures, for instance, you would have Edward Mybridge, who was a photographer, who would publish you know images of a horse going, I've achieved instantaneous, instantaneous photographs. It takes a fraction of a second. And if you connect them together in a little drum, you can, you can animate how a horse moves. And he publishes this in La Nature. And so Marais, who's a French 
scientists can go, oh, I'm trying to work out how birds move and human beings move. So I'd love to be in touch with Mr. Mybridge, who published a letter in issue X. So there's that sense of, of collaboration and awareness. And then there's the more rapacious kind of awareness, which is people like Edison, where he had a staff collecting every issue of La Nature, every patent that was filed. And he's very deliberately kind of paying attention. I was really intrigued to read about the way that Edison worked in your book, because I think the way he's gone down in history, a lot of people would just imagine he was sat on his own in a room coming up with these ideas, but it wasn't really like that at all, was it? He, he had a whole team and it was a whole commercial enterprise. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So that image of Edison, I think was real in his first few years in the 1870s when he's that kind of American ideal of the lower class, lower middle class, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can make something out of yourself. And when Edison starts his career, you know, he works for Western Union and he comes up for a way for the, the, the kind of telegraph wire on the railroad to go both ways at the same time. And that he comes up completely on his own. So now you can communicate two-way. It makes him his first little fortune. But this is 12, 15 years before this story. So by the time we're in the late 1880s, when Le Prince and others are looking at motion pictures, Edison's become this guy who ours compare him to Steve Jobs. He's got this image. He's got the kind of worker's kind of chore coat and everything that's his equivalent of the Steve Jobs turtleneck. He's got money behind him. He's got a whole facility of people who do the inventing. He oversees stuff. And really what he's doing is, is pointing his inventors in a direction, taking the credit at the end and being a kind of public figure. The same way Steve Jobs would come out on a stage and, and say, this is a new Big Apple thing. Thomas Edison would call up the newspaperman who he kind of had in his pocket and say, we're announcing the new Edison thing. And so... Even when we talk about Edison inventing motion pictures, he's not the guy inventing motion pictures. It's someone doing a work for hire contract, basically, who's inventing it in his name. And like, you know, because that's the thing, the myth around Edison that you were talking about was kind of the one I grew up with as well. And, and, and that kind of thing. By the time I was writing the book, there was this kind of counter myth that people would always bring up, which was, oh no, Edison was a fraud and a thief and he stole stuff from everybody and never came up with anything. And that were, that's not true either, obviously. He was a genius. But he, A, kind of worked out that he was a genius at finishing stuff that other people had taken 90% of the way. And B, he was doing all this stuff that's now run of the mill for a big corporation. And that's what he was. He was a corporation. And so he smeared rivals in the press and he briefed against them in the press and he sued them into the ground and he used the system to his own purposes and he hired thugs to break up unions. What's really interesting, though, is that didn't exist before him. There was no such thing as an inventor with an R&D department whose whole business was about this idea of coming up with new things. And so he was inventing this kind of corporate skullduggery in that area. He hadn't had a win in a while, which is the thing I really liked about exploring him and writing him here is, is he'd kind of got to this point where he was announcing stuff that didn't work that well. He'd announced the phonograph and then he couldn't really sell it because the thing didn't work. And he'd announced the telephone to kind of uh, uh, Trump Alexander Graham Bell, but his thing didn't really work and he couldn't build them. And so by 1888, 1889, he's desperate for a win. He's, he's you know, people are making fun of him in the newspapers that he's washed up. And, and he's a con man who's announcing tricks that don't work. And so he's desperate for something to kind of put him back on top. So to jump back across the Atlantic to Louis Le Prince, when we get to Edison being at this point in 1889, 1890, where he's desperate for a win, as you say, what's happening with Louis Le Prince? What's the status of his invention by that point? 
Le Prince is way ahead, which is the interesting thing. So he's, his history here gets a little bit complicated because the family moved to New York for a little while, partly to kind of restart, partly because Le Prince had visited and, and loved America, partly because they had some debts in England they wanted to get away from. Small debts, you know, stuff you could, of the size of a small mortgage, you know, because there are people who've talked about Le Prince as, as someone who's going bankrupt, which he wasn't. So they moved to America for a while. He starts working on his, his, on his camera there. And then eventually he gets so close that he decides... I got to go back to England. The family stays here. I'll go to Leeds because I can use my father-in-law's forage and stuff because I don't have capital, but he has it. So I'll go use that. It'll take me five, six months and then I'm done and then I'm back. So he leaves his family in New York and he sails back to England himself. And the five, six months becomes a year and in two years and in three years. And part of the issue was at the time, people took photographs on glass plates, right? Or, or on rolls of paper film, which both worked great if you're a photographer. You want high quality, the glass works great. You don't want to carry on a bunch of glass plates. You have these little paper rolls, brilliant. But making movies where you need 10, 12, 20 pictures to move through the camera really quickly, the glass breaks, the paper rips, the thing doesn't work. You're using kind of primitive electricity that gets very hot, sets fire to the thing. And so Le Prince, by 1887 or so, let's say, has figured out the camera and a projector that seemed like they would work if only he didn't have the damn glass plates and paper. And at this point, Edison hasn't started. And there are others working on different versions of what Le Prince is doing who are kind of neck and neck with him. But Edison hasn't even considered this thing. And all these guys, including Le Prince, are kind of at this point where they're almost there. But they don't have the thing to put the images on that can be flexible and sturdy and it'll bend in the drums in the camera and it won't break and the image quality will be good enough. And the big turning point is there's a bunch of separate entrepreneurs, mostly in uh, northeastern United States, who have this thing, this first industrial plastic called celluloid and have no idea what to do with it. But they've been trying to make it into fake teeth and have been trying to make it into collars for shirts and billiard balls and no one wants it because everybody is still kind of like you know i can get ivory there's guys slaughtering elephants every minute i don't need this thing and so these entrepreneurs including george eastman including a man called john carbutt are kind of trying to figure out what to do with this plastic and people like eastman and carbutt who work in photography hear about the plastic and they go oh well if it's flexible and bendy and sturdy and really sensitive we could replace the paper in the rolls with that, and then it'll last longer. And instead of sourcing paper, we can just set up, you know, what we think of as industrial factories with big vats and just make this plastic, which had never been done before. That was really interesting to me as well. This idea that celluloid was the first industrial plastic. And the reason it catches on is they go, it'll be great for photography. We'll brand it as a photography thing. And once that happens, people like Le Prince read about it in photography journals, and they have the same inspiration where they go, flexible and tough, and so that's exactly what I need. And so that becomes another kind of demarcation point where for a little while, Le Prince has to kind of mess around with it, right? He's got to find it, he's got to get it from wholesalers, he's got to cut it to the right size. But suddenly in 1888, he manages to make what is now the oldest surviving film, because we still have fragments of it and it works, and it's at the Science Museum in Bradford, called the Roundhay Garden Scene. And so Edison has barely started and Le Prince has made a movie. And that's what's really interesting. The gap then closes pretty quickly because of funding and because of a whole bunch of different stuff. But by this point, he's essentially there. He's, he's there and it becomes about bringing this thing to market. Because this was another thing kind of getting worked out at the time. Legally, your patent says you're the first one. 
have invented something and Le Prince had tons of patents. And technically your film says you're the first one because it exists. But we're kind of at a time where patents are super complicated and they're disputed all the time. And people claim that they have valid patents that are thrown out on a technicality and invalid patents being approved because of influence. So it's not as clear cut as that. And your film is a film, but this is also a time where, you know, people are doctoring photographs and they're coming back from expeditions to South America and stitching different animals together and claiming they've discovered a new animal. And so there's all this skepticism about technology. Even if you can see it, you're like, well, maybe he's faking it. And so what becomes kind of accepted is that you're the first to have made something if you can sell it or if you can sell a ticket to it. And I don't think people are really necessarily aware of this at the time. But in hindsight, the reason we consider Thomas Edison you know, an inventor of motion pictures or the Lumière brothers in France, an inventor of motion pictures, is they had commercial screenings. There was this immediate capitalistic idea of if it's good enough that you can sell a ticket and not have everybody asking for refunds and your customer says it works, then you've done it. And so in the last year of his life, Le Prince is at this point where he's done the thing, but he's got to sell the thing now. Because that's the thing that, that A, reimburses him for all the investment and B, makes the world take him seriously. So that's the point he was at when he, as you say, vanished from a train in theory. What did people think had happened to him after they found out that he had disappeared? So the first theory was something happened to him on the train, right? A mugging, an assault, an attack. And at the time, both in France and in England and elsewhere, there was this kind of anxiety about the railroad that, you know, if something happens to you in your hometown, people know you, they know where you usually go, they know the possible suspects. The train kind of blows the world wide open to where stuff can happen to you in places you never expect from people you'll never see again. And so that's the first assumption. The next assumption from Louis' widow Lizzie actually comes through the news because a few months after Le Prince disappears, still haven't heard anything from him, still no news, she opens the newspaper one morning, the New York Post, the New York Sun, and there's a headline about Thomas Edison's newest wonder, the kinetoscope. It's a motion picture camera. It's a motion. You can see life move. And Lizzie's reading this thing. And it's Edison talking about a machine that works very much like what Le Prince had invented and patented. And Edison is describing it in quotes in very much the words Le Prince used to describe what they would do and how it was a good idea. And it's the first time publicly that Edison's really spoken about it. And this happens to happen a few months after Le Prince totally disappears. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The Drowned Man is so close, just as a starting point. I spent six months, you know, with my phone with a picture of the Drowned Man and a picture of Louis Le Prince, like literally going up to strangers going, is this the same guy? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So what's your take on that? Do we know if there was any school degree at play? Had Edison 
stolen La Prince's idea or was, as you say, much more murky because many people were working on things at the same time and patents were very complicated? It's murky, but there's also theft. What's interesting, I think, is, you know, this is a little bit of a red herring because it becomes quite obvious quickly in the book that Thomas Edison didn't go out and kill him or anything. That's not what the guy did. It's such an attractive theory that it's kind of gained more steam than it needed. But what's really interesting is there's a lot more other shady, dishonest, unethical, quote unquote, violence you can do to a rival that Edison did to everyone. Can you give some examples? Yeah. So for instance, one of the things that was interesting is this invention that Edison announces, the kinetoscope. In a year or so that his staff had been working on it, year and a half, they had a bunch of different designs for it. And none of them could have worked. But suddenly from one day to the next, he's got this version that works. That's not his. And that you can establish very clearly he stole from other people, including Le Prince. And so he did stuff like that. He did stuff like, you know, Alexander Graham Bell comes up with a telephone. Thomas Edison does a thing he called perfecting it, which means I steal it and I swap out a piece and I call it mine and say it works better. And then when Alexander Graham Bell pipes up about it, Thomas Edison calls him a pirate in the papers, smears him, and six lawyers on him, and kind of uses that whole machine. And, and there are people like Alexander Graham Bell who carried on their work. Regardless, there were others who were put out of business and, and gone bankrupt and all this stuff. You know, there are people in Edison's employee who came up with stuff that he would fire and smear and, and try to make sure they didn't get other jobs. And so he did all that kind of stuff. What he didn't do was going to France with a gun in his pocket so he could, you know, blow someone's brains out and, and steal their papers. And so there was that kind of stuff going on. But Lizzie Le Prince isn't aware of all of this. And her mind also directly goes to, well, he must have had something to do with it because it's too big of a coincidence that my husband disappears. And, and right after that, this guy who already has a reputation for being a thief and dishonest, even at that time, within inventing circles. This guy comes up with with our invention as his. And I feel like that's fairly reasonable as a kind of reaction. But over the years, as Edison made a fortune from motion pictures, as others made a fortune from motion pictures, and as the Le Prince's didn't, at first couldn't, and then later didn't, I think that kind of metastasized into, it's not just he must have had something to do with it, it's he did it directly. He did it for the profit. He Edison became kind of representative of that kind of a nebulous them the fates, the, the, the people who, who took everything away from us. And as their kind of family story gets more and more tragic, because in a weird way, Le Prince's disappearance is kind of just the first kind of rock in a whole slide, the deeper her kind of paranoia became about Edison being this, this villain figure. So if Thomas Edison didn't kill him, and that's too neat a theory, as you say, what else might have happened? So the, the, the set of theories are he killed himself, Someone else killed him for the invention. Someone else killed him for another reason, whether it was someone he knew or someone he'd met at that time or whatever. And then the final one is someone kind of killed him for no reason. You know what I mean? He got on the train, he gets to Paris, he arrives in Paris, it's late in the evening, someone mugs him and throws his body in the Seine, and that's that, which happened a fair bit at the time. It's relatively hard to see how common it was because newspapers made a big deal of it every time. But, you know, the morgue was a big attraction because unidentified bodies turned up all the time needing identification. And so that's the kind of main set of theories. And then there's kind of, you know, a possible but extremely unlikely one, which is an, an accident happened somehow. You know, he's 
standing at the door of the train and there's a bit of bounce in the rail and he falls off the train and cracks his head and no one ever finds the body. You know, I guess it's possible, but I don't see how. And so the way I tried to go about it was to kind of treat it as if it was an actual today cold case, if that makes sense. And having very little evidence to kind of apply, again, the Holmesian thing of let's eliminate theories and at the very least get to the one or the ones that you can't eliminate. So which theories can you easily eliminate and which can't you? It gets a bit subjective, right? The accidental thing you can eliminate immediately because it depends on a whole bunch of, you know, this would never have happened. And then the suicide theory, I was able to eliminate fairly quickly in a sense that as much as you can't tell about anyone, whether dying by suicide is something that might be contemplating, all the stuff that usually indicates someone is not in that mindset existed with the prince. He'd made plans for the future. His mindset didn't seem to have changed. He didn't have a drastic change in, in circumstance. He was behaving the same way he always had. He had young children and, and, and a family that he was excited to go back to. Almost more importantly, because his body was never found and because a note is never found, for me to accept that he's killed himself, I got to figure out a way that he's done it in such a way that no one's finding his body or seeing it or anything. So that becomes something that I discounted. And then there's actually another theory I didn't mention earlier, which is this idea that he makes himself disappear. So he doesn't kill himself, but he you know, goes to Marseille, joins the Foreign Legion, you know, goes somewhere else, starts a new life, which was technically possible, but again, asks you to believe so many you know that thing people say about, yeah, that thing people say about conspiracy theories, that they demand that you ignore the obvious to believe the far-fetched. That was one of those. I've got to ignore a lot of obvious stuff to believe the far-fetched of he just up and left everything he'd worked on, his family, his children, and was never heard from again. So I was able to eliminate that. And essentially what I got to at the end was between someone killed him for a motive that he knew and possibly a random mugging. And the random mugging thing... I had a really hard time believing, but you're also always fighting yourself as a writer, right? Because if he's randomly mugged, that sucks as an ending to a story. And so you're always kind of conscious. Am I, am I fighting this? Because subconsciously, I'm like, I don't want it to be that. That's lame. Or am I fighting it because I should be fighting it? And Le Prince's descendants, his family, who were like incredibly helpful and open and generous and whatever, also felt quite strongly that I think that's what happened. And so I also had to approach it with, well, these people have had their whole lives with this story. They've been involved in documentaries, exhibitions, interviews. If their instinct points in that direction, I got to take it seriously. There was at least the opportunity to go check the morgue records where people are described and they have photographs and to see, you know, okay, if something happened to him, you know, in Paris, there's a morgue, in Dijon, there's a morgue, whatever. If something happened to him in that sense, maybe I can at least find a body. And I could make sense of this theory of if it took six weeks for anybody to realize anything was wrong, it's entirely possible something happened to him and then his body's in the morgue for a month and then after a month they say it's unclaimed and by the time anybody knows to look for him, he's in the ground. So that felt like a strong possible theory. And then the other possible theory was someone who knows him or is acquainted with him got rid of him so they could either take the invention or they had another motive. And that interestingly opened up a whole gallery of people who weren't Edison. So... You know, speaking as me coming to it at the beginning, early on in the research, okay, Louis's brother-in-law, Jack Whitley, was kind of one of those obsessive, crazed entrepreneurs who was constantly in debt. And they were very, very close. And could there be something there? Because maybe if he needed money, if he needed possible motive. He was around in Europe at the time. 
put him on the suspect list. Uh, Le Prince's brother, last person he saw. If I speak to a bunch of coppers, they go check the last person who saw that person alive. So put him on a suspect list. And then there's a whole group of people who knew of uh, what Le Prince was doing with film, who may have thought that it was a great invention and who maybe may have wanted it for themselves, put them on the list. And so the way the book kind of sharpens to a point is as it tells his story, but we kind of get to the point at the end where hopefully as with my thought process, those are the last two things that are left standing. And then I have one that I feel really, really strongly about. If I go halfway there, I don't think he was mugged or randomly attacked. I think it was someone he knew and it was one of the two guys who, and there's no smoking gun, right? It's 140 years ago. You know, like you research it and you have this fantasy of like, I'm going to go to an archive I'm going to be in a church basement. I'm going to open a book. And in the back of the book, there'll be a little piece of paper going, I confess, I I did it, and I'm tortured. But that doesn't happen. So there's nothing like that. The interesting thing is of the people who've read it so far, I don't think anyone has kind of gone, oh, I'm not convinced by that. It's more been people going like, oh, I kind of wish it was Edison. As opposed to like, it doesn't work. Because I think that was also the interesting thing. You know, if the book thinks about myth making and stuff, this idea that we so badly kind of wanted to be Edison. And I don't even think it's born out of hating Edison or rooting for the prince. It's just like, that's a really good story. And, and, and you know, working out the reality is a lot murkier and sadder and, and you know. This idea about myth making is a really interesting one, I think, because obviously Edison has gone on to become much, much more famous than the prince has. But, I mean, we're in danger of strolling into, you know, hypotheticals here. But if Le Prince hadn't gone missing, do you think he would have been able to monetize his his invention and perhaps become better known than he is today? Or do you think he would have always faded back into the shadows? It's a really interesting question because of all the people who are working on movies, the two that we generally remember as the inventors, be it Edison in America and the Lumiere brothers in Europe, they were industrialists. They already had a framework for distributing and selling this stuff. And so when they had rivals, kind of smaller rivals, they were able to either overcharge them license fees or wipe them out of business or as Edison was suing people and and putting so many producers out of business in New York that a whole bunch of them went, let's just go to California. They don't sue us over this stuff. Mexico is right there. It's cheap. It's sunny. We'll just do it over there and you can't reach us. And that's literally the reason why studios started there is to just get away from, from this guy. And so even if Le Prince had managed to have this screening and this premiere, it's a big hypothetical that he would have had the means to ramp it up and, and you know, at scale sell this invention. And so more likely at the time, he either would have had to partner with an Edison or Lumiere's or someone with the infrastructure. And then you go home, you make a license fee and, and that's that. Or... You do the old-fashioned kind of carnival fairground thing where you tour around with this invention and eventually there's an expiry date on that because then other people come up with a different version and, and that's your trick gone. It's possible that he would have been able to monetize it and sell it and, and you know create the business the way Edison had or the Amir Brothers had, but it, it wasn't a given necessarily that, that it would have worked that way. And you know we imagine the first motion picture screenings as... Again, another myth, you know, the Lumiere brothers idea of they had a screening, people sit down, the train's coming towards them, they're screaming and jumping out of their seats. And the reality was, that's not really how it worked. People went, this is amazing. We got to see this. But I also have a magic lantern at home. I have a general idea of what this is. And so, you know, when Edison kind of opened his Kinetoscope parlors, they weren't front page news. They were kind of page eight in the New York Times. 
And so I think it's easy to assume Le Prince would have had this show. People would have gone, whoa, he's a wizard. And then he's suddenly world famous. More likely is people would have been like, oh, that's really cool. Can I buy it off you? Can we license it? And there still would have been a lot of work to do. The thing that's really interesting, though, beyond monetizing it, is Le Prince seemed to be the only guy at that time who had a vision for what movies could be. You know, Edison, even when kinetoscopes were out and for sale and people were, were buying tickets, Edison still thought this is going to burn out in a year or two. It's a trick. It's a novelty. It's a toy. It's not serious. And the Lumiere brothers had the same instinct of... This is a trick. It's a thing. It's people are going, ooh, and then the next shiny thing, they'll move on. Le Prince, in his letters and correspondence and papers and the way he spoke to his family and friends, he was the only guy I could find of that time who was like, no, this is going to change everything. This is going to allow you to see how people live on the other end of the world. And it's going to allow us to kind of go across borders. And he was a war veteran. And, and you know, he had grown up in a part of France that was sometimes German, sometimes French. And now the French and the Germans are killing each other. And he had this thing of, well, if we could just show each other, like actually show each other our experience, you'd go, oh, that German doesn't have horns or a tail. He looks like my son. And, you know, he'd worked with, with, with deaf children and was like, no, you could use these moving images to teach them lip reading and sign language. And it's so much easier than, than anything else. And you can record the stuff that works and repeat it. And you can teach history this way rather than a book. And he had sketches in his notebooks for what he called the People's Theater, which was seats and benches and a stage and a big screen, which I hadn't seen anything before that of someone basically drawing out the cinema. And so I think what would have been really interesting is the way it actually happened. Cinema wasn't cinema until after World War I. You know, the, the motion pictures were kind of forced into feature length films in a theater by a bunch of different factors. But he kind of had that from the start. And I wonder what would have happened if the guy who had invented the technology and was recognized to have invented the, the technology from the get go with a 30 year head start on what we have now was kind of pointing it in that direction. But that's a hypothetical, as you say. And it's also, you know, I've, I've, from the research, I have affection for Le Prince. It's also not a given that if he'd announced the thing, made a lot of money, he wouldn't have turned into the guy who's suing everybody and, and growing quite bitter and horrible the way money makes you. So it's really hard to tell. But I love that he had that vision. I love that when everybody else was making what they thought of as a toy, he was genuinely going, oh, no, I'm changing the world because that's how we think of inventors. But it was weirdly the exception. People on the internet... They love a mysterious disappearance and have really gone down the rabbit hole with, with this one. And one of the things that's often brought up is this idea that's called the drowned man theory, that there was a body in the Paris morgue that was found, which some people think may have been Le Prince. What's your take on that? And it was kind of like that, that is this dress blue or white or whatever challenge to people going like, is this the same guy? And I don't think it's him. And it's a good example of that thing of, of trying to discount the things you can't explain. So the drowned man, the timing works out like he, he's fish. It sort of works out. He's fished out of the center roughly the right time. But his people can see this from the photograph online. His his this is gnarly. His body isn't decomposed the way it would be if someone had been in the water for weeks. So if it is Le Prince, he was alive or not in the water for a few weeks from his disappearance and then put in the water. So where was he for those few weeks? And then the drowned man has a completely different beard style from Louis Le Prince, but in a weird reverse way. And Le Prince had a thing called a hulahi, which is the big mutton chops on the side and the mustache, but nothing on the chin. 
So this guy, if he was Le Prince, would have had all of that shaved off and then grown back in a different style, which Le Prince could have done if he was trying to disappear. But then why is he in the morgue or in the sand? Did he throw himself? So I got to answer that one. And then the drowned man was wearing clothes with a different monogram on the inside than Le Prince's would have been. So whose clothes are these? Why did he change clothes? If he's just going to disappear, kill himself, why is he wearing a whole different getup? He, Le Prince was 6'3", which was massive in 1890. And the log of uh, defining characteristics of this drowned man does not mention his height. Whereas usually if someone was 6'3 at the time, if you were going to publish this so people could find their relative or whatever, you'd go, well, the fact he's a giant is pretty noticeable. But that's not in there. So I've got to buy that they've either omitted the height or the drowned man is not 6'3". And you know, no matter what happened, if somebody shaved a few inches off of him, that would also be noticeable and notable. And so there's all these things that I personally couldn't answer. And it's sexy too. It's the smoking gun you're talking about. The photo could, could be him. It's convincing. My wife is like, that's him. My best mate is like, that's him. You know, somebody else is like, no, that's not him. The noses are totally different. It was very 50-50. It really could be him. And as I say, you know, he disappeared in October. The drowned man was found in the Seine early November, I think. And so decomposition aside or water damage aside, the timings kind of work. And it also works that his family wouldn't have noticed he was at the morgue because by, by the time they processed the body and buried it in the pauper's grave, they were just finding out. It really is such a great photograph because you do go, oh, that could be him. That was Paul Fisher. His book on this story is The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures, a true tale of obsession, murder and the movies, which is published by Faber. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Jack Bateman.